0: Before we get to the conversation you're about to hear, a quick note, there is some swearing in this episode.
1: Most of us, we were excited to go. This is what you join the Marine Corps to do, especially as an infantryman. You, You join to go into the fight. So you're looking at like a couple inches of hey, there's a a miniature hole here that I could use as micro-terrain to try and nestle my ass into so I'm not taking rounds. And um, you don't really realize it at the time how vulnerable you are until you have a couple inches of packed dirt above your head and you're like, all right, I feel relatively safe, you know? I peek up a little bit and, you know, the rounds start popping over my head. I'm like, shit, man. Like, they got us dialed in, and we're just sitting ducks at this point.
0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and my guest on this episode is Jeff Couric. He is a gunnery sergeant in the United States Marine Corps, and he joined The Spear to share a story from 2010. After a couple of deployments to Iraq in September of that year, he and his unit were sent to Helmand Province in southeastern Afghanistan, the first time in that country for Kurik and for most of the other Marines. One day in November, his squad was assigned as the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, ready in case Marines needed help. When a patrol from their small base in Sangin District was hit by an IED and came under fire, the QRF was launched to go provide support and bring them back. You're about to hear what happened that day the intense fighting, and the hard work of bringing back a casualty in time to keep him alive. It is an incredible and pretty sobering story of combat. Before we get to it though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It really is a great way to stay up to date on the articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the official positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Jeff Couric.
2: Well, Gunnery Sergeant Jeff Couric, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Spear.
1: Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it.
2: So I guess if we can kind of start, can you, can you give our listeners um, maybe just a quick kind of background synopsis of, of your military career?
1: Sure. I came in at 17 years old, right out of high school. I joined in 2004, uh, went infantry, and actually got assigned to the Presidential Security Detail in Camp David for a little while before moving over to uh, Camp Pendleton, California in 2007, and then did a couple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, a couple of Mews with 5th Marines between RCT-5, 5 3 and then back to 2-5, and then went on the MSG program as a staff sergeant, served in Saudi Arabia and Poland as a detachment commander, went back to Quantico to serve as an instructor advisor at the schoolhouse there, and then got assigned orders to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where I currently serve as the cap platoon sergeant in weapons company, Victor 1-2.
2: All right. So we're going to talk, I guess, about, you mentioned a couple deployments, Iraq and Afghanistan. We're going to talk about one of those deployments in particular, right? And that's an, an, an Afghan one. That's correct. So when are we talking? What year is this?
1: This is September 2010 to about April of 2011.
2: Okay. And this is your, what, second or third
1: deployment? This was my third deployment at the time. Okay. First
2: time in Afghanistan?
1: First time in Afghanistan, correct. Okay. Uh, and where were you? we were operating in the Sangin district of Afghanistan. So kind of a, a hotbed at the time. And one of those fights that you knew you were going to get into, uh, some pretty serious stuff before leaving, just because you're sitting in and all these briefs and everything. And they're talking to you about the, the layout of the land and who's there currently. And some of the TTPs that the enemy is using at the time. So we knew going in to this deployment, what we were getting into and, um, And we certainly were provided that.
2: So this is in uh, Helmand province for listeners that are kind of uh, just to kind of orient them. Helmand province, obviously, um, sort of southwest. And it's not what people often think about Afghanistan. They think these, you know, big, beautiful snow-capped mountains um, very rugged terrain. Most of Helmand province is kind of flat and dusty desert. But the part you were in is sort of on the edge of where you start to get some more terrain features that you don't get in, in southern Helmand because you're up in the north. Is that correct?
1: That's, that's fairly accurate, yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, you, you do have the mountaintops, you've got the broad landscapes and the flat terrain with the, the rivers, the canals, farmlands. And we were operating in a district where it was right against the, the Helmand River. Uh, To our west, we had, I wouldn't even call them mountains, but some rolling hills and some higher elevation. And then where we were operating in the green zone majorly majorly, uh, was fairly flat, just a lot of canals, a lot of farmland, that kind of thing.
2: Okay. And so what was your job in this deployment?
1: My job was to be a squad leader for 2nd Platoon and India Company.
2: Okay, this was your this is your first Afghanistan deployment. Were there other Marines in your uh, in your platoon that had been to Afghanistan before?
1: Within our platoon, no. I, I think it was everybody's first time in Afghanistan uh, within the platoon. There may have been one or two other Marines that have been there, but I don't recall, off the top of my head, of anybody that was there previously. It was major. Okay. It, it was it was. For the majority, it was uh, Iraq deployments prior to this Afghanistan deployment. For any Marines that have deployed previously,
2: so when you got there, um, you had done two Iraq deployments before. How did I guess give me a sense of kind of not only you but maybe your squad generally and and your platoon? um, Like, did you did you kind of was it did you feel like you knew what you were getting into, um, or was it sort of a hey we'll we'll figure it out when we get there?
1: It was kind of a combination of both, really. We were receiving the pre-deployment briefs that you get from some of the intel groups and without going into any kind of classified items. I mean, we were receiving some some TTPs and whatnot from these folks that have been there before us. And I mean, everybody was looking around the room like we're about to get into the shit. Um, so you had that 50%, let's go do this, and then a 50% of well, we might see and do some things that, uh, we may never see again. And, uh, most of us, we were excited to go, but that is what you join the Marine Corps to do, especially as an infantryman, you you join to go into the fight. And that's exactly what we got with this deployment.
2: So we're going to, as you know, as listeners know, we, most episodes of the spear focus on kind of one single incident. Uh, and I guess you've selected one that you're going to tell us a little bit about, uh, today. Can you tell us when in the deployment, uh, are we talking about,
1: yeah, so this was November eleventh of twenty ten, and we had been deployed for about two months at the time. So we'd been operating within that area for about eight weeks at the time, and had seen quite a few things at that point in time. Uh, got a general lay of the land, what to expect when we go outside the wire, uh, how to operate, things to do, things not to do. So it was it was a decent time at that point. We weren't completely shell shocked. We were certainly well within the deployment one third of the way in at that point.
2: So what, um, you had your, you kind of had your feet under your legs under you, I guess, after about eight weeks, uh, then, so tell us about what happened on November 11th.
1: So on November 11th, this was the day immediately following, uh, we all know the Marine Corps birthday on November 10th and we had just recently taken a casualty who was KIA on November 10th, and that was kind of fresh in our heads. And my squad, particularly on the 11th, was operating as a QRF for 1st Platoon with an India company. So, 1st Platoon was conducting a patrol south of Fob Jackson, where we were stationed out of at the time and based out of. And as QRF, the quick reaction force, we are basically on standby with all of our gear, just listening onto a radio for anything that they may need assistance with whether it's a casualty or just additional support or whatever the case is so first platoon uh, i think it was first squad they go out um, i I don't recall the exact squad i just remember it was first platoon they go out outside the wire we're listening on the radio and typically at that time in the deployment they would be scheduling controlled demolitions every 30 minutes for the friendly side so we knew when we heard a big boom, whether it was good or whether it was bad, whether it was us or whether it was an IED. And at this point in time, it wasn't time for controlled debt. And we, of course, hear a loud explosion and we essentially know what that's lined up for. So we essentially wait for the radio call to come in and just based on a tone of voice from guys that are calling in over the radio at that point in time, you kind of had an idea. Hey, this is serious and just within so uh,
2: sorry to interrupt, I just want to jump in. The so essentially you heard you heard a big boom uh, and you didn't you had not been notified by the squad that was out uh, that they were doing a control debt before. So you knew so this is not something that was planned. so you're just sort of waiting for the call for the QRF.
1: That's correct. Yeah. so we're just waiting for that call. We hear the nine line come over uh, for a Kazavac and we know immediately, okay. Let's get our shit on. Let's move outside the wire and go help these dudes out. And uh, that's exactly what we did. Who? So,
2: your, your squad or in a yeah. platoon?
1: Yeah, my squad. So uh, my squad, the team leaders and all the Marines within the squad, we got our, our stuff on, headed out through the South ECP and then some of the other 1st Platoon Marines as well, some of the NCOs. Uh, they also, I mean, when somebody gets hurt, everybody wants to help, right? So you kind of have yeah. to man- you have to manage chaos at that point in time, and especially accountability. Uh, when you have a mass wave of people that are about to leave the ECP and want to go help. So uh, there's a couple first platoon Marines and my squad as well as the QRF. And we we know it's south of us, right? So we, we get to the south ECP and get our accountability and everything. And uh, once we do that, we finally head outside the wire. And at that point in time, two months into the deployment, a lot of the command was urging us to use sweepers, the Valen, the CMD, that kind of thing, to sweep. So that was a big priority. And it was kind of this this weird thing where uh, it's more of a it was, – it's was a formality, right? So the, the Valen, in essence, was more of a formality than anything. Um, the Valen, what do you mean? Like a, like a mine sweeper, essentially, like a metal detector. Okay. Okay. So we're leaving – the- you guys
2: – are you guys on foot?
1: Yeah, we're all on foot because this terrain, you can't really do mobile operations or mounted operations on just based on the, the the terrain itself and some of the canals. You just can't get wheeled vehicles over some of these things unless it's a, a hard packed road um, that you could commit to. So yeah, we're all, we're all foot mobile at this time. And once we hear where their location's at, we plot the grids and everything, and they're about half a mile away. So like 800 to a thousand meters away south of us, which doesn't sound like a lot of space immediately off the, the front end. But once you start going through some of this knee deep mud and you're jumping canals and uh, starting to take fire, that 800 meters turns into a couple miles, what it seems like fairly quickly. Sure. So we all had out uh, a lot of times we ranger filed the movement wherever we were at in Sangin, for the most part, and by ranger file, you essentially ducks in a row, right? Uh, which is good for the enemy, depending where they're at, because it provides them on fire of us. However, for us, if we step outside that line, uh, we risk stepping on an IED, which, of course, Sangin was just littered with IEDs everywhere, especially for the first few months, so uh, we would utilize... Either somebody dragging their foot, like, "Hey, stay to the right of the mark," or uh, baby powder was really helpful as well uh, when we were doing patrols. But for this instance, for QRF, you're just trying to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, so we for we, we for went the uh, the baby powder, the foot dragging. We're just kind of lining it as quickly as possible through the brush to get to these folks. Uh, finally, we get on scene. Uh, conduct a link-up with the casualty. It happens to be their platoon sergeant from 1st Platoon that had stepped on a device. There's some additional casualties as well, uh, but not nearly as bad, fortunately. And they're able to walk uh, the casualty the platoon sergeant. He had lost both his legs. Um, So he's on, on this pulled litter. And the guys are exhausted, right? I mean, they're starting to get ambushed from a few different positions, from roughly 25 enemy fighters. They're carrying this guy. They've got a bunch of disoriented guys from a squad as well from the blast. So we're just there to try and pick up and help them out and get them back to friendly lines as quickly as possible.
2: So when you when you get on the scene, they're halted at the at the site of this yeah. IED that the platoon sergeant stepped on.
1: Uh, no, this is uh, we're taught to get them off the X as quickly as possible, at least at the time. And T C, the tactical casualty. Combat care guidelines, you know, they're, they're always shifting from year to year depending on what we find out in country. But at mm-hmm. the time, it was get the casualty off the X, provide a base of fire, uh, maintain fire superiority, and then bound your movement back to friendly lines from there. That's generally how we operated for the entire deployment when it came to casualties. Okay. So one thing that prepped us really well for casualties in my mind was the what we called a kill house. And that's conducted in 29 Palms. And it's essentially a a trailer in the middle of the open uh, with a bunch of live amputees. And they dress up. They have makeup artists. They have blood packets. Uh, The whole nine, the the floor is slicked with fake blood in the whole nine. And you walk in and, uh, you know, they'll turn up a fog machine or bright lights. And people are yelling. And it kind of provides you that initial shock factor of what to expect with a casualty. Uh, along with an actual amputee and some blood squirting all over you, and our fake blood, and you learn how to work through that process. So that really helped us out on deployment. I think at least getting used to the shock factor and it, getting that training value out of it. So it wasn't our first time seeing it. Uh, Did all of you, all the all the Marines, go through that? Yeah, all the Marines went through it. It was called Mojave Viper, I believe, at the time, otherwise known as CAX or ITX. The, the, the name itself kind of changes, but the events listed within are generally the same. So it's like a, your final pre-deployment exercise before going out into country and operating. Okay. And sometimes with these blasts, so going back to the platoon sergeant that was, that was injured with the blast, the, the actual shock and all the dust and the particles and the air, they'll essentially uh, absorb the wound and, and provide it uh, kind of like a a gauze or a tourniquet in itself and stop the bleeding because there's so much dirt and crap packed up on the blood um, that really you you put put a tourniquet on, put two tourniquets on, and you're okay. In this case, the platoon sergeant, he wasn't yelling. He was conscious and awake essentially the entire time. And uh, so that was a little bit different than what we had been trained for in 29 Palms. Um, So we get on scene to the casualty. Uh, we take over for some of the the guys that are just completely exhausted at that point because they're going through the fire, uh, taking fire rather, and, and transporting this guy into litter, trying to provide bounding fires and keep him protected. So we get on scene. We set up kind of like a modified 360. We take a tactical pause, try and find out where all this fire's coming from. And so we've got two squads uh, plus maybe a fire team or two on the deck. So probably like a platoon minus, I'd say, at the time. And we have a couple of decisions to make. We we can do like a point of injury LZ, uh, which is a landing zone to get a bird in, or we could try and transport the casualty back to Fob Jackson, uh, where a medevac would, bird would land and pick him up, and ideally within a golden hour, transport him back to Bastion, where he would receive follow-on medical care.
2: Fob Jackson was the was where that's you came correct.
1: from. Yeah, that's kind of where we operated out okay. of as India Company. So we make the determination to do a point of LZ or a point of injury LZ and attempt to set that up. But at the time there's just, there's so much fire coming at us that there's no way in hell we could land a bird. Right. So we, we initially sent out a couple guys to sweep an LZ, a couple couple lanes, you know, in the open, uh, so that the LZ or the bird can land within the LZ. And at the time we're just taking too much fire and we're like, well, shit, we can't land a, a bird here, right? And we've got air on station. They're making a couple of gun run passes. They go Winchester. So we're kind of out there in the open without air on station for a little while. It seemed like an eternity, probably only maybe 10 or 15 minutes in actuality. So we decide, okay, screw the point of injury LZ. Let's get this casualty and the other guys back which means transporting them that six to eight hundred meters at this point through fire through the brush through the canals and all that so we're sitting there we're all pinned down at the point at that point we're all in the prone position Uh, i remember i had a helmet cam on me unfortunately the batteries went dead so all i had was a camera and i turned the camera on i peek up a little bit and you know the rounds start popping over my head i'm like shit man Like they got us dialed in and we're just sitting ducks at this point.
2: Can you explain a little bit, um, see if you can kind of like verbally paint a picture of uh, like what this area looks like. Are you, is it, is there brush? Is it just flat and, you know, dirt what's around? Sure. Yeah.
1: So this is in November timeframe. So the the corn stalks were already uh, harvested. So you have kind of broken corn stalks and this, generally open field that's i'd say about 200 meters wide by a click deep or north to south uh, long so you've got a north to south running canal on the east side and you also have the hellman river to your west that's also the running north and south um, to, to your immediate south you just have open vegetation which is just a bunch of farmland essentially a couple tree lines and then to our north We've got Fob Jackson, which is where we, of course, came from. So that's kind of the the rectangular op box that we were working at the time. Um,
2: But There's not a lot of cover or concealment. Right, right not a lot of
1: cover. So you're looking at like a couple inches of, hey, there's a a miniature hole here that I could use as micro terrain to (laughs) try and nestle my ass into so I'm not taking rounds. And um, you don't really realize... It, at the time how vulnerable you are until you have a couple inches of packed dirt above your head and you're like all right i feel relatively safe you know um so that's kind of the the, the layout of what we were working with some sometimes it would rain in the the canals and everything that would get flooded even the farmers they would have their irrigation set up at certain points in the day or certain points in the week to flood their farmland to flood the canals and that's kind of where we ended up with the, the knee deep mud situation where you're just like trudging through with this casualty on a litter and you're completely smoke checked trying to get this guy back. Right. Um, so that's, that's the general terrain that we were working with. Point of injury LZ is a no go. So we decide, all right, let's lay down a base of fire. We have kind of a modified 360 setup. Uh, a bunch of guys are kind of operating independently, decentralized from everybody else. Just with the general understanding let's get this guy back as quickly as possible thinking that hey we've got 60 minutes to get this guy back essentially so we lay down a base of fire fortunately some a-10s check on station and this was kind of a scary moment for us i remember the first time the a-10s let go it was like are are we getting ambush point blank or what because the, the noise was so deafening because The tree line to our east, that canal I was talking about, the north and south running canal was maybe 50 to 100 meters away from us. And these A-10s are just coming overhead and laying down this fire. And because you're so close to the tree line, you hear the cracking of all the trees before you even hear the actual A-10 in the distance. So it's kind of like, uh, to put it in perspective, kind of like thunder. When you hear thunder, right, or lightning, for instance, or artillery from a distance, you see the big boom, Uh, Then you wait a couple seconds, and then you hear the big boom, right? So we're on the deck, and it's loud as shit. But fortunately, we're like, okay, that's good, guys. At least we can move with that. So every time they would lay down and come through with a gun run, uh, we would pick up, move maybe 20 or 30 meters, and then drop them, and then shield him again, uh, lay down our own internal suppressive base of fire, and wait for that A-10 to come back around. And that's kind of the process we went through. Along with some British helicopters as well. Uh, I remember one of the Marines, he was a sergeant from 1st Platoon, and he's on the radio and he's like, immediate reattack, immediate reattack. And I just see him on the radio trying to carry this litter, trying to shoot all at the same time. I'm like, this shit is fucking live right now, you know? Um, so they came in, they went Winchester again, and I, I'm like thinking to myself, we're in a shit sandwich right now. Like, shit's getting worse, not better. And we've got this casualty still to deal with, too, which we happen to keep dropping, right? Because we're trying to get this poor guy through all this damn mud. And he even after the fact, he—he he, we, we met up with him again. He's like, you guys kept dropping my ass. Like, that shit sucked. And we're like, we're, we're, we're <laughs> sorry, man. Like, our, our, our idea was not to keep dropping you. It was just we lost our grip. We lost our balance, getting shot at, trying to protect him and everything. Um, but, yeah, we must have dropped him like half a dozen times and I felt so damn bad too, because you just, there is no level of, of exhaust, uh, physical exhaustion that none of us have really been through until that point in time. Um, so you could imagine just the complete 360 degree chaos that's going on around you. Uh, fortunately, a couple other birds, you know, they get checked on station and everything. They're still laying down and lighting up this tree line immediately to our East, uh, which it provides us enough time to get this guy back uh finally we do a handover with an adjoining unit that kind of stepped outside the wire to help assist um so again we're all foot mobile at this time we're lifting this guy up like over through canals and whatnot trying to keep him stabilized and not dropping him and having him fall over on the the litter and i remember when we're coming back through the lines there i've never seen a pile of dunnage in a firefight up until this point i mean there were at fours just like a a pile of at fours there um just demo and all sorts of other rounds and and shit and just dudes going ham on like a 240 uh just trying to cover our movement back into friendly lines and uh turns out that we just like completely cleared out the entire ammo cage of ammo and we had to request an immediate resupply that night because we had gone through all of our ammo uh fortunately every Marine uh, survived that day and uh, that Marine got taken away to Bastion. He made a recovery. I mean, obviously he lost his legs and everything, but he's able to at least spend time with his family, be with his family and uh, the other Marines as well. They made a full recovery also, fortunately.
2: Well, um, So I've got a couple questions that I want to kind of um, hone in on a couple of what I think are kind of interesting aspects of the story. Was the platoon leader with you?
1: Our platoon leader was not. No, we did have some of the leadership from first platoon to include a couple of the lieutenants. Uh, There were, I think, two lieutenants with us from the other platoon. And I want to say like the JTAC with us as well. Some of that can at least talk on fires and everything, but it was just a squad out on patrol and Um, No, we didn't have like a platoon leadership for our platoon.
2: So was it, um, you've got got one squad out on patrol to begin with, then you've got the QRF, you've got a squad and some others that come. In terms of chain of command, was that, was it ever difficult to kind of establish who's the person in charge? Because, you know, you need somebody in charge, just kind of making these determinations. Although you did kind of say that you had, a bunch of Marines out there kind of acting independently and I'm sure it helps that you're all from the same unit. So you, you know, you've worked together before you kind of know how each other operates. Uh, you've got SOPs, but what, was there any confusion around, okay, who's in charge
1: here? In terms of who is in charge, I don't think there was too much confusion there. Usually it's the squad leader of the patrol that's out already because he's got the immediate idea and the immediate uh, landscape painted. He's got the best picture of what's going on. And then as the squad leader for the QRF, Typically, we would just link up with one another or one of the senior team leaders and just figure out what's going on, what do we need to do, and where do we need to go. So confusion-wise for leadership, I don't think there was a whole lot of confusion. I think most of the confusion came from uh, just people trying to set up that 360, try and provide support and security and fires while moving back and bounding back. So I think that's where the majority of the confusion came from.
2: You said you were kind of you were taking a lot of fire from the the canal on the east side of this field. You know, you got out there, and one of the first kind of tasks is okay, where are we? Where are we getting hit from? Uh, you're trying to figure that out. Was it exclusively from that east side, or were you taking fire from the tree lines to the south or the river to the west? Either.
1: Yeah, oftentimes it was it was hard to tell uh, where we were taking fire from unless we actually got positive identification. And it, it initially started, I think, from the south, and then slowly transgressed over towards the east side and this time we were actually able to see the dudes running from you know building to building so we knew it was coming from the east side and we just directed all of our fires we masked our fires all towards the east side uh, as best as possible because these guys are i mean the the fires we were fighting at the time they're they're smart right i mean they've been fighting for a long time uh they've been doing it against improved technology they know what we have they know how to combat that and they know how to move and move really well and move quickly, uh, especially against a pinned down fixed force. So they, they were, uh, I got to give them credit on that. They were they were pretty well-skilled when it came to that. Um, but yeah, most of the fire came from the east side and a little bit from the south.
2: When you had, uh, you said you think the JTAC was out there, uh, which means that you've got somebody on the ground with you that can that can coordinate with uh, the A-10. Was it one A-10 or
1: two? Uh, I think it was one at the time. Okay. I believe, and he just kept making gun runs back and forth.
2: How important was that? I mean, if you didn't have the A ten, you said you also had some uh, British helicopters, because you know most most listeners will know that the Brits had a heavy presence in 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 other parts of Helmand as well. Um, Bastion was obviously a British base. Um, how important was that close air support?
1: That was one of the biggest learning points specifically of that firefight but kind of as a whole across the deployment is never step outside the wire without some air support or air on station or some general game plan to have air in support of you and it was one of those things where we would purposely plan our patrols and our operations around air time so that we at least had somebody up in the sky had we not had them uh I, i don't know i mean likely we probably would have taken a lot more casualties in all honesty uh we still would have tried to make that movement back to the fob as best as possible but when you don't have an a10 above you or some helos above you just laying lead down into a tree line it of course becomes that much more difficult just with a 240 and some m4s you know so that air saved our ass for sure
2: that's one of the things that i think listeners might be a little bit surprised uh about is that you know there there are mechanisms for ground units to request air support, um, but oftentimes it was the air units, whether it was Air Force fixed wing aircraft or uh, rotary wing from whoever, uh, that they essentially would send them up, and they're just kind of loitering, and they you know they've got a box, a grid square essentially, a big grid, and they're just up in the air waiting for a call from somebody that says, Hey, we need some help. Uh, So it's really interesting that you would then schedule your patrols, your operations around when you knew there were going to be aircraft up in the air that could help you out.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like having big brother up in the sky. So you knew that if you got into a tick or got into some shit that within minutes, they'd be able to come down and help support you. And the thing with that is you'd have to have their, their air frequencies Uh, loaded onto your radio as well. So you could even yourself as a patrol leader, just get on the hook with them directly and talk them onto the scenario by relaying that through the COC. And that kind of became our friendly TTP at the time after a few months of dealing with uh, the IEDs and the ambushes and the firefights is let's get air on station. Let's program or uh, coordinate our patrol efforts and our operations around these air assets. Let's use them for what they're worth. And that was incredibly beneficial for us and, in my opinion, I think it saved a lot of lives by the end of the deployment. Even though we lost a lot of guys, I think it saved quite a few as well.
2: Yeah. Did you did your squad uh, or maybe all the guys that were involved in this uh, do an AAR when you got back? We
1: did. And it's funny you bring up the after-action process because I think collectively we could do a lot better job in the Marine Corps with the after-action process. I think oftentimes we'll get told and tasked out to, hey, write up this after action, right? And then it gets, we write it up, we submit it. And a lot of times it'll just maybe get left aside and not really serve its true purpose of informing future units. Hey, this is what we saw. This is what we did. This is how we operated. This is what works, what doesn't work, that kind of thing. And um, I understand there's a website for that as well that the Marine Corps uses, but from unit to unit, I think we could do a lot better job with that after action process in general to set these guys up for success that, Uh, go ahead and come in after us and that way they're not starting from scratch, right? They at least have a general understanding of the AO and how to operate and what things work and what didn't.
2: You said that, that, that sort of, um, understanding the importance of having air support, having air assets on station, uh, when you're out was one of the things that you learned from, uh, from I guess this incident, was there anything else out of the, maybe out of the AAR process that you kind of took that informed the way that you went about your business, the, the rest of the, you know, the next six, eight months of your deployment?
1: Yeah. I think casualty care was one of the biggest ones just because out of, I think we took about 800, a thousand Marines in the country with us for the deployment and a quarter of them got injured. Right. So you're looking at a little over 200 Marines, Got wounded on this deployment uh, which of course breaks down to essentially every time or every other time you're leaving the wire somebody's going to get hurt at some point in time so having solid training conducted prior to uh with any kind of TCCC c or cls training anything with casualty care and the newest latest and greatest for that is beneficial uh, even some of the the more the field craft kind of things um, where, yeah, you've got tourniquets, you've got gauze, you've got quick clot, whatever the case was at the time, but something as simple as like dudes were using tampons, right. To plug gunshot wounds. Cause they knew that, yeah. Hey, you know, I mean, that's what it's used for. So, and it, it was quick, it was effective and it worked. Uh, so guys would be using stuff like that. Uh, drilling nine lines, drilling CASVACs, drilling Z-mists, um, understanding weapons, employment, and being tactically proficient in your weapons as well, understanding the capabilities, limitations of your equipment, whether that's the armor that you have, the demo that you have, uh, how heavy is it, how much can you transport, what will a rocket do to a 12-inch shit wall, what will it not do, uh, something like battery life of your optics, of your GPSs, of your communications gear, uh, how long are you going to go out and kind of task organizing and basically doing your met T analysis and seeing, okay, we're going to go out for three days is how many batteries I need. This is how many chiles and water I need in the whole nine Uh, ranges of weapon systems. How far do they reach out? What can I get with fixed air vice rotary air? What can I get with, you know, sixties and 81s vice uh, 120 millimeter artillery conventional, Uh, that kind of thing, just understanding and being like a student in the art and science of warfare what things work and what things don't work. Um, Having a little bit of language help as well, just your basic, you know, whatever it was, Pashto, Arabic, if you're in Iraq, that kind of thing. Uh, One thing that helped with us that we learned on the spot actually was exploiting the hell out of the kids. And, And what I mean by that is the kids are usually innocent as long as they're under, you know, say 10 years old. Um, and we would take these kids and after about a month or two of going through alleyways, a lot of times alleyways would be booby trapped or have IDs and we'd be like, fuck going down that alley. Right. We would either a pops it or we would divert somewhere else or blow ho- holes through somebody's home, but we would take some candy and care packages, or we would take like a bouncy ball from a care package and we would launch this shit down the alleyway. And if the kids ran after it, we knew it was safe. Right. Um, and so we walk behind the kids or we walk behind an elder. If we launched this bouncy ball down the damn alley and these kids just stayed put, we were like, okay, screw that alley. We're not going to go down there. So it's kind of learning trends and using field craft to your advantage and using everything at your disposal, uh, whether it's training beforehand or training while you're actually like o- OJT in country on an operation on a patrol. Uh, you just adapt and uh, adapt to your climate adapt to the situation
2: you know you, you've highlighted the importance of uh, of training you know pre-deployment training uh, but also the sort of the things that you can't necessarily get from training that just come from experience and I was going to kind of ask you you know which of those do you think was was kind of more important but you know I don't want to put words in your mouth but it kind of sounds like you you know neither one of them is sufficient you need to have that training and then you need to be willing to learn from your experiences throughout the deployment as well.
1: I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on there. Um, and not only just the training piece, uh, I, I hate the term, you know, check in the box training, right. And some units do a really good job at it. Some units do a poor job at it and training to a standard, not to a time, right. So if you're in the field, you utilize that field time to the best of your ability. Uh, not only does it build morale and confidence within the junior troops, they, they want to learn, right. They want to apply the things that they're taught. They want to get better, and it allows that buy-in amongst the junior troops, uh, especially as you know, a squad leader, a platoon sergeant, a platoon commander, whatever the case is, uh, with those guys. So train to that standard, uh, train to what you're going to be doing uh, in the in the very near future, in the you know, uh, whatever opera, whatever deployment that may be, and train with a purpose. To just don't go out and all right, we're going to go BZO and then you know, call it a day. So
2: right. Well, I'm glad the the, uh, the casualty, the platoon sergeant, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad he survived. Uh, I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm sure you had some Marines that didn't make it home. And, you know, sorry about that. But I really appreciate you taking some time to share the story. I think we have, um, you know, as we wind down operations in some of these places where, you know, we, you have more and more uh young soldiers, junior officers who don't necessarily have direct experience with these things. And so to be able to kind of hear, Hey, this is what we learned from this really tough day on this deployment. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's really, uh, it's interesting and it's useful and it's helpful. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, John, for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Hey, thanks again for listening to The Spear. Remember, if you aren't already subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, please take a second and give us a rating or leave a review. Thanks again for listening.